0: as well have many things to learn from what Paul is talking about here. So, three questions on affection and honor toward one another. We're going to talk about three questions, the the what, the why, and the how. The what, the why, and the how of what does this affection and honor, those particular two exhortations, we have the third exhortation of of hating that which is evil, Um, but these last two, we're going to particularly talk about the what, the why, and the how from this passage. So what is affection towards fellow believers? What's, what's that affection look like? What should the body of Christ and a church actually look like? What does it mean to honor each other? What does it mean to hate what is evil? Why is this commanded? Why is it important? And then how do you experience it? How do you have affection for someone that you may not even like? How do you, have, how do you honor a fellow Christian who may do dishonorable things. How do we do Because Paul doesn't say honor them as long as they're honorable. Or he doesn't say have affection for them as long as they're lovable. That's not what he says. There's, there's no exception clause. There's no caveat. He says to love them, to have brotherly affection for them. So we typically answer these questions of how with pragmatism. We answer it in such ways like, well, you just need to spend more time with them. You just need to get to know them. Right? I mean, you guys ever thought about that? Yeah, well, if I don't like them very much, well, I just need to spend more time with them. Maybe I don't understand them. Maybe I don't get them. That's not what Paul says. Although that might be valuable, but that's not what Paul says. <clears throat> we also might answer that with, well, this is why you can't be a large church. You won't know everyone. <sighs> Again, is, is that what Paul says here? Paul say, you need to remain a small church so that you can love each other with brotherly affection. Is that Paul's point? No, Paul does not say that. Instead, he answers theologically, and that's where we're going to talk about. So first, the first thing that we're going to talk about is the what. The what of the passage. If you have have your notes, if you have a pen, I'd encourage you. Basically what we're going to do is we're going to work through it basically verse by verse. And if you, uh, you'll note that we're like in verse 9, and this phrase, like I was looking at Rusty's notes, and I don't mean to brag on Rusty, I'm like, wow, those are really good notes. That's like exactly what I said. Um, and he wasn't looking at my sermon notes. But uh, like we tend to get, like, go phrase by phrase. So the first phrase we're going to look at is, abhor what is evil. Um, so if you want to write that down and just make some comments on that, that would I, I just want to help you as you take notes. So first of all, verse 9. Uh, the first thing Paul tells us to do is hate what is evil. Hate what is evil. So he says, let love be genuine. And then we're going gonna, gonna to set that aside for a second and we're going to come back to that. But starting off with, he says, uh, abhor what is evil. So Paul shifts to using uh, a, basically a participle that functions as an imperative, like a command for us here. So he tells us to abhor what is evil. He commands us to do this. So those who belong to the people of God are to hate what is evil. Now the word here for hatred is a very strong word. Like Paul's not just saying you should hate this like you hate Thai food or spicy food. Like, or you should hate this like this is an extreme hatred. Like a disgust. Like it, re, it, it is revile reviling to you, it is, you, you it's make, It's repulsive. It's, it's hatred. So those who belong to the people of God are to have a hatred for this and instead are to cleave to what is good. Now, let's think for a moment. Think for a moment about what we hate when it comes to evil. Think about what we hate when it comes to evil. We hate the thought of child abuse or molestation, right? I mean, we all hate it. Like, that is reviling to us, right? And it should be. It's repulsive. We hate the crimes of rape. We hate even the thought of the Holocaust, right? I mean, it's just some examples. We, we hate those things. And all of this we hate rightfully, and we hate them as evil. But here's the deal. Um, your idolatry of the heart is just as evil. So when we worship comfort, affirmation, power, control, other things other than God, that is just as evil. And we're called to hate that. Now that doesn't make us feel good, I understand, but the, the truth doesn't always have to make us feel good. When we, when we love something more than God, which ultimately these other crimes like rape, molestation, molestation, holocaust, all those things, ultimately come down to they loved something other than God. Whether that was themselves or their desire or whatever, it was an idol that they chose to worship rather than God. So we have to realize that in our hearts that it can be just as evil, and it is just as evil, and Paul is commanding us to hate this, and you say, well, your your response is, so, so now I just need to muster up an emotional disappointment and disgust for my evil, right, so that's, that's just what I need to do, I just need to muster up this, I just need to feel bad about it, right, like, I just need to feel bad about that which I do is wrong, right, I mean, that's what we're thinking, right, so I'm just gonna psych my heart up, so the next time I do something evil, uh, I go, oh, man, that's terrible, you know, no, I don't, I don't think that's the answer. Instead, knowing God and letting the gospel transform your delight in evil into abhorrence of this evil. That is the answer. You see, legalism tells us that we just need to do that which is right and then feel about it in some crazy way. Instead of letting the gospel transform us. And dependence on the gospel, seeking the gospel. So what well, because what does Paul say here? He says, abhor what is evil and then what? Hold fast to what is good. What is good? Hold fast to happy thoughts. I mean, is that what Paul's talking about here? Like think happy thoughts, dream happy thoughts, speak it over and over again in your mind? I mean, that's what psychology tells us. If you don't want to do that's wrong, then then think happy thoughts and think positive thoughts, and that's That's not what Paul says. He says, hold fast to what is good. What would Paul define as that which is good? God. All good comes from God. Don't hold fast to the good things of God. We hold fast to God. And to knowing Him. Knowing Him more rightly. Knowing Him more clearly. Knowing Him more well defined. As Scripture defines Him. Not as our minds define Him. But holding fast to that which is good. Because... Holding fast to God. Because what has Paul just got done saying? Paul just spent 11 chapters describing for us the mercies of God. What God has done in our lives to transform it. And he's saying hold fast to that. Hold fast to that which is good. That which God has brought about. The mercies of God. This is good. The hope of the future return of Jesus. This is good. These are the things that Paul is telling us to hold on to. So the what, he tells us to hate what is evil. And then he tells us to love each other genuinely and with brotherly affection. So, clearly, the idea of hating that which is evil, this is in the context that we can't just take that thought and just pull it out and just float around with that thought. We have to keep that thought in the context. And in the context, Paul's talking about unity, he's talking about affection, he's talking about love within the body. He's talking about this body that is going to reflect rightly Christ. Let me pause for just a second. Am I ringing? All right, maybe it's just ringing in my head then. Maybe bring me down just a hair. All right, I don't feel like I can yell. I'm just kidding. All right, there we go. Is that better? It's like, is that good? That's oh, better for me. So, all right, and that's all that matters. I'm just kidding. All right, so Paul says in verse 9, he says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So love must be genuine. Like some translations say like without hypocrisy. So we see this in the church. And we see love that's fake. We see love that, that is just, well, we know them from church. We, we kind of know who they are and blah, blah, blah. But we don't really know them. We don't really love them. We have this fakeness to our love. Paul elsewhere demands the necessity of genuineness in love. For instance, 2 Corinthians 6 6 says, In purity and knowledge and patience and kindness and the Holy Spirit and genuine love. Also, Peter, the author of 1 Peter 1 says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervent love, fervently love one another from the heart for the brethren. Again, this is not that we can't love and shouldn't love those who are not a part of the body of Christ. But he's specifically talking about that context. So people can externally be kind and nice, yet lack genuine love and affection for others. You guys see that? You realize that? Now, and that's, that's just everywhere, right? Both in the church, outside of the church, whatever. But in the context of the church, we can, we can be nice... Cordial, but loving that person be the furthest thing from our mind. And the the point, and the fact is, guys, is that, that that becomes obvious eventually. You know what I'm saying? Like I would say, uh, my guess is this, and 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 I think it's a really good guess. If you were to talk to people who outside of the church, and you were to ask them if they think church, this church, this church are loving and the church is known for their love for each other and their affection for each other would that be the case? And I don't think it would be. I mean when I look around I go yeah not so much. It's more known about their agenda or their you know their business meetings or their buildings or you know so on and so forth and and, and I'm not trying to pick on other churches that's not my point right? But the point is what is Paul calling the church to do? And it's to have a genuine love for each other. Not just a fake expression of kindness. Right? A love for each other. Let's talk about that a little bit further. In the second verse that we're looking at today in chapter 12, verse 10. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. With brotherly... Affection. Now this word and the honor word, or uh, or, or, I'm sorry, this word right here is is an emotional word, okay? We don't often talk about emotions, uh, but we need to talk about emotions. This is an emotional word. Of course, you can love someone you don't like in one sense. You can help them, you can treat them with respect, but this is not the kind of love Paul is talking about here. It's not just I do things. He's talking about an affection for them. The word here, uh, it means, it literally means brotherly affection. It's the affection of a family that comes with long familiarity and deep bonds. Now, let's think about that. Now, some of us don't come from families that have that kind of affection, unfortunately, so it's hard for us to relate that into the church. Like, we come from families where you know, they might like us one day or not like us the next day. Or we come from families where mom and dad hate each other. Or we come from families where I haven't talked to my sister in 10 years because, because we just don't like each other. Like That's oftentimes the picture. So when we come to the body of Christ, we come with that dysfunction. And we go, how am I to show brotherly love? I've never seen that given to me. What does that look like? And I admit that's hard. Uh, that's a challenge. How do we show brotherly love? I mean, so let's talk about this a little bit. So brotherly love, of course you can fight and get mad. But I mean, think about it. it doesn't True brotherly love, at the end of the day, it's not going to tear you apart. Like, there's still that affection for them. Imagine a bully picking on your brother. Right? What would you do? Of course, some of you are like, yeah, I'd laugh. It'd be funny. Uh, I mean, what would you do? Like, if you had rightful, brotherly affection for them, would you? Now, with Rusty and Robbie, it's all about Robbie, or Rusty protecting Robbie, of course. So, uh, I mean, think about that for, with me for a second. I used to, I got to say this, now, this is a rabbit trail, but I to had this professor in seminary in my, in my Greek class. So someone would ask him a question. They'd go, hey, well, what does this verb in this sentence and mean and blah, blah, blah? And he'd go, you know, I don't know. I have to think about that. And he'd literally take like five minutes. Like the class would be silent for like five minutes. And he'd think about it, uh, which I really appreciated of him because when he said he was going to think about it, he really meant he was going to think about it. But let's think about this for a second. What? What is that what would you do what would your what would your th- what would your response be because of that affection for them Or maybe maybe think of a spouse maybe you think of a spouse maybe that your someone was to mistreat them You know I think about the awful things not all the time but that could potentially happen to my wife and many of my responses would end me up in jail uh, and uh, and and I, you know, just don't hold me back, okay? Guns a-blazing, dude. And uh, yeah, you know, because there's that affection. Now, at the end of the day, if I thought, well, this is a caveat, but like, uh, all right, I'll just say, it. I was going not gonna say, it, I'm gonna say it. That, like, now, if I thought that this was gonna end me up in jail, and then my wife is going, and my kids are not going to like I'm not going to be able to be with them, then the best thing is for me not to rip the dude apart. It's best for me to just rip him apart a little bit so I don't go to jail as long. Uh, so. <laughs> but, uh, so, no murder, right? You know, uh, yeah, anyways, all right, sorry, moving on. But think about this affection. I th- think about that. That's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about an affection that has no boundaries. He's talking about a love for each other that's a protection, a a provision. Are we characterized by that? I'd say we have some work to do. I think it's growing. But again, what, what we immediately go, okay, well, I just need to know these people longer. I just need to spend more time with these people. Yes, that will, should bring about brotherly affection. But honestly, if you don't have the right theology and understanding of why we have this brotherly affection, most of the time, for many of us, the more we get to know someone, the more we are repulsed by them. Right? Have you, I mean, have you ever had those kind of friendships, relationships where you're like, man, I wish we could just go back to the how I knew them three months ago. Because now it's just not as fun. Right? And, and see, that's why pragmatism doesn't work. Because our hearts are sinful, and they're going to go down that road before they go down the road of, I see their imperfections, but I still love them. So. Uh, you might even say, well, I can't do that because I don't even know these people. We never even talk. There are, there are many idiots in the church. No one would say that about here course, but, but, you know, a question, since when are God's commands supposed to be doable on our own, right? Just, just, can we just say that from the outset, when are God's commands supposed to be able to be doable in our own strength? So Paul here is conceiving of a church as a family that is even, and this is going to stretch some of us, that is even closer than our biological family. You're going, whoa, alright dude, now... Now we overstep the bounds. I mean, think about it. All right. So, with our family, we have a connection that's blood. We have an emotional connection. Uh, we maybe have an intellectual connection. We have these connections. But the thing that we have in the body of Christ that we don't necessarily have in the family is the spiritual connection, and that spiritual connection lasts for an eternity. Right. So Paul is saying that this is the kind of love within the body that we're to have. Let me give you an example. First 1st Tim, Timothy, this is Paul again writing to Timothy, chapter 5 verse 1 through 2. He says, "Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a what? As a what? As a father. To the younger men as what? Brothers. The older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters." in all purity. You know, I used to think it was really a hokey, part of some more southern type churches, and they all call you brother, right? Brother Matt, you know? This is brother Matt. Like, we don't do that in the north. The only churches that do that in the north are the churches that are made up of primarily people from the south, uh, which happens to be Baptist churches. Uh, They are all, like, People came up to work in GM and Delphi, and so they call each other brother. I used to think that was the hokiest thing in the world. But then, uh, literally, as I, as I began to understand Scripture, and, and, and although I don't think that they understood the implications or the, the, the full application of calling each other brother, if they did, I think it would be awesome. But he's talking about, how, he's, you are my brother, like you are my sister, and I'm going to have the love and affection for you as my sister. So like for you men, like looking at the ladies in our church, you should love them as a sister, or love them as a mother. Some of us, that's hard, right? Because we're going, well, I, you know, I don't know how much I love my mom, you know, or my sister. I, I'm, I know, I'm, I'm just being honest, all right? Like... That stinks, but there's ways to discover that and what that looks like. And that's part of what the body is supposed to be like. So if your mother maybe has not been as lovable as you, you're still called to love her, right? But maybe another older lady in the church can model what that motherly was supposed to look like and you can love her as a mother and then begin to... Live that out with your mother and repent for not loving her the way that you should. I'm just talking about some practical ways that we can discover that. But uh, as a part of the body, we are called to love each other with this familial type affection. And that this should characterize the people of God. This should characterize the people of God. Instead, we're characterized by our gimmicks and by our, you know, cool music and we're characterized by our good advertising and our big buildings and our basketball programs and blah 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 Why are we characterized by our affection for each other All right. on top of affection we're talking about the what so hate yeah, which is evil have this brotherly affection and love for each other and he says give preference to others in showing honor Give preference to others in showing honor. Verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So honor here is different than affection. This is not a poetic uh, writing of Paul. He's not saying the same thing two different ways. He's saying two very different things. He's talking about affection and he's talking about honor. So you can honor a person for whom you have no affection. And you can have affection for someone of, for whom you have No desire to show honor to. So he's telling us to do both. So he says to show honor, to outdo one another and show honor. Now, Paul doesn't, he's not intending for us to choose between the two. He's not saying do this or this. It's a both and. Do these. Show honor or showing honor. I'm sorry. Honoring someone is this treating them with your deeds and your words. As worthy of your service. That's the idea here. To show them honor, if you want to write that down, is treating them with your deeds and your words as worthy of your service. Again, does Paul say to show them honor if they're worthy of it? Does he? Mm -mm. It's not there or show them honor if they happen to make you feel honored. No. And to the quite the contrary, they may not be worthy of it. They may not they may not have done anything or they may do things that are dishonorable or contrary to that which is honoring. He says but to do it anyways. Some honoring means Simply treating people better than they deserve, right? to show them honor it might be more than they deserve, and that's what Paul's getting to. And they're like uh, having a party in there, aren't they? Uh, baby talk. I seriously was telling someone the other day, my my buddy preacher in Kentucky said uh, they had like nineteen people. Like it was, a, it was really like small country church, and they didn't have a nursery. So all, the key, all of that would be in here, and, uh, and I'm like, dude, how do you do that? And he's like, dude, I just, just teach, and I'm like, oh, that's, yeah, I, don't, I get too distracted. Uh, wow, look at that. See, we just talk about it, and God goes, shh. I'm all right, so we're going to move on while we have some silence. So there we go. So some honoring here means treating them uh, better than they deserve. So let's look at an example of that, 1 Timothy 6. Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So let me just think about this. Your boss could be a jerk, but you can still show him honor as worthy of your service. Now, particular here, we're in the context, that was outside of 1 Timothy's, outside of the context of the body. We're in the context of the body of showing honor. So someone in the body can be a jerk, and you can still show them honor. All right? You're going, whoa. Right, he just called someone a jerk. Yep. Uh, you can count them worthy. All right, hear this. The way God counts you righteous. Okay? Let's let's move forward with it. So God does not count us righteous based upon our doing, our good works. He doesn't count us right. He counts us righteous. For those of us who follow Jesus, He counts us righteous because of Jesus' earned righteousness. So when you're honoring that person, you're not honoring them because of their earned honor. Honoring them because of God's earned honor. Honor, right? That that person as a redeemed person now living under the blood of Jesus, you can honor them because they are one of God's people. Right? Does that make sense? There's a lot more to develop there, but we don't have time today. But another example, first Corinthians twelve, twenty-three. He says that on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we restow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Now we talked about that verse later. It's talking about the church having different parts and how all of them are necessary. As he's referring to there. So even that, that is less honorable, we bestow great honor. So what does it mean to outdo one another in showing honor? What does it mean to outdo that? To, to prefer to honor rather than be honored. That's really the crux. See, most of us love to be honored. Like, that's, we want to be honored, right? We want other people to think us worthy of their service to us. That's what we want. Instead, Paul is telling us to prefer, like the, in the Greek, he's really saying uh, the ESV translates it here as outdo. I don't know if any other translation, but the, really the, the Greek here is, is prefer their honor over my honor. To give them honor versus giving myself honor. So if you try to out-honor someone, it means you love to honor more than you love to be honored. And that's what he's going for here. That you trying to honor them versus yourself. So Paul, by implication, would say put to death the craving for honor and instead cultivate the love of honoring other people. This is hard, right? This is hard. We we all like honor. Am I the only person, right? I like to be honored. We have plaques and trophies and stuff for our honor. And he's saying to prefer to honor other people. Now, that looks quite different than the cutthroat Christians that we see today, right? That's much, much different. To show honor, to, to bestow honor. So, we've talked about the what. Now, let's talk about the why. So, the what is love them, give preference to their honor, abhor what is evil. Now, why? Why is this important? Why does it matter that we have affection for each other and we prefer to honor each other? Now, obviously, it matters because the Bible tells us to do it. Right? So, the Bible says to do it, we do it. But why? Why is it important to God? So, let's consider why it's important to God. To God. If we're image bearers of God. So if God created us in his image. That's what Genesis tells us. Why is this important for us to understand? First one. These two experiences. Speaking of affection and honor. But you also could clump into the abhorrence of evil. But particularly for right now. Just for clarification's sake. These two experiences. Affection and honor. Show the reality of our new nature in Christ. Show the reality of our new nature in Christ. So God commands that we love with affection and that we honor each other because these two experiences, along with everything else he's talking about in Romans 12, show the reality of who we are as a follower of Jesus, as a new person in Christ. Again, what is it that makes sense because of the mercies of God? It's this living sacrifice. That's the only thing that makes sense. It doesn't make sense for us to only desire honor ourselves and only have affection for ourselves or just to select people around us. That doesn't make sense in light of the mercies of God. What makes sense is that we die to ourselves and we have hatred for evil, that we have affection for each other, and that we desire to show honor to others more than we do ourselves. That's what makes sense. The other doesn't make sense. It's not rational based upon what God has done in our lives. That's why it just blows my mind when we look around the church at large in our Western context, the United States, that we don't see this brotherly affection. We see a business. We don't see honor for each other. We see selfishness. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Instead, these two realities show that our new, what our new, the, these two experiences show the reality of our new nature in Christ. Affection is natural because the new birth means that we are all born into the same family. We're all born into the same family. Affection is natural. We have one father, God, and we are all brothers and sisters. So 1 John 5, 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So how do we grow in our affection for God? We understand that it's a reality of the gospel that's inside of us. So how do we do that? Well, we have to understand the gospel that's inside of us. We don't just need to spend more time with people. Spend more time with God, and then let that come out as we spend more time with people. How this affection, it doesn't, that way it's not just a surface thing. It's a deep rooted heart change, a transformation from the inside out. That's probably my son. We will spend an eternity with each other in the sweetest possible relationships. No suspicion or animosity or resentment, right? So once heaven comes. All is redeemed. That's the relationships that we will have. And Paul is commanding us to live in light of that reality now. We are not, think about this with me, people. We are not honorable in relation to God, we are infinitely dishonorable to God. But still God has given His Son on our behalf, and that while we were still sinners, He honored us by rescuing us from sin and death and hell and Satan and by giving us a place at His table. Right? So God, if you want to know how to honor someone who is dishonorable, if you want to know how to have brotherly affection for someone that You can't stand. Look at God. Because God, through His Son Jesus and many other displays, but focal point in Jesus showed honor and love to those who did not deserve it. So how do we grow this affection for each other? It's not by just spending more time with each other. It's by knowing God more, understanding God more, and His relationship to us more. Understanding ourselves in light of that more. Then out of this comes, but see, this doesn't make sense. I mean, our culture is like, well, let's just give it the one, two, three steps to success, and one, two, three how-tos of how to have a good relationship. It's not, that'll work for a period, and then it'll all crumble eventually. John Piper says this, he says, We have been so immeasurably honored in mercy that not to prefer honor as we have been honored by God is to betray that we have not tasted the treasure of our salvation. So for us to not show honor to someone is for us to betray and for us to spit upon the fact that God has showed us great honor. I was, that kind of hits a little heavy, I think. Second reason why these two experiences strengthened and confirmed the faith of those around us. <clears throat> God demands that we love with affection and prefer to honor each other because this strengthens and confirms the faith of those we love affectionately and honor. So that when we show love and affection and honor to each other, it strengthens our faith. It strengthens our walk, our journey. And God has designed the body to be a means of strengthening this journey. Like our main means of perseverance, of persevering in the faith, is through the body. But if the body's not doing what it should be doing, then our perseverance is going to be that much harder. But when the body is doing these things like affection and, and love and honor that helps strengthen that. Third reason. Why? These two experiences display the glory of Christ. These two experiences display the glory of Christ because He is the one who enables us to live this way. And this is a portrait of His own character. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Guys, as people who claim to be followers of Jesus, when we do something that's not reflective of His character, we say to the world a lie about God. Does that make sense? So if God is bestowing honor on someone that does not deserve it, then when we fail to do so, then we are saying to the world that God does not bestow honor on, on us or that God loves us based upon our performance which is not true when we fail to show love to someone he even doesn't deserve it again we're talking particularly in the context of the body then we are saying a lie about God instead when we do it we display and exalt Christ we say something that's true of Christ and we are reflective of God as we represent Him. Fourth reason. These two experiences entice the world to love Him. Capital H. Him. When you magnify Christ, exalt Christ by loving each other in the body affectionately and outdoing each other and showing honor, the world will see and be more inclined To glory in God. Uh, Matthew 5.16. He says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. When we study church history, uh, like Roman Empire time, the church grew like crazy, especially due to the kind of community that the people had. They had a loyal, loving, humble, affectionate, respectful, sacrificial relationships. That's what they had. Today in American culture, we have an individualistic, selfish, self-seeking, prideful type church communities. Instead, we should have this. And and the world looks at that and goes, ah, I see. And, and, And not all, but some may go, you know, I want to be a part of that this is what this looks like, hey, that's great. I want to I I know more about this. Why? Because it's something that's true of God. It's reflective of God. Now, again, to some that will repulse and some that will draw, we know that, but it is something that's true of God. Now, let me say as a as a Bible study note or a hermeneutical note here, we don't do this because the early church culturally happened to do it this way. We're to imitate this culture of this early church and how they were in relationship with each other. We are to imitate that because Paul commands us to imitate this aspect of the early church culture. So just because it was, we see it from History, or it's even accounted in the Bible, doesn't mean we're supposed to do it that way, but we do, like here it's clear, Paul is saying to do this. This aspect of the community, we do, we imitate. We need to be about this. So, last big thing here. So, we talked about the what, the why, now the how. The how. You can't create real affection and authentic honor. How many of us try to create affection? Huh? Try to create affection, try to create authentic honor. So we typically, the fact is you can't, so we typically have two responses. Fakeness or just total disregard. Right? I mean, that's our, that's our two responses. We're either just absolutely fake and everyone can see through it or there's a disregard and here's the deal, even in your fakeness, if you can't see it, through it right away, it will be brought to light what it's really about. So there'll come that situation where your fake love just falls apart and crumbles. So how do we show love to someone you may not even like? How do we give honor to someone who doesn't deserve honor? First, you have to admit that we can't be this kind of person without divine enablement. like we can't do this without God. Uh, We need to pray earnestly and regularly that God would do whatever He has to do to make us more and more into this kind of person. Like, we need this as a body. Now, practically, I have some thoughts that I think might help in this pursuit. One is remember that other believers, no matter how imperfect, are the children of God, your Father. Right? Right? Remind yourself that Christ shed his blood for them. Like, so, as a pastor, like, when I'm dealing, you know, with people that are part of this flock, I'm just always reminded, not because of people's craziness, uh, but just always reminded in the good and the bad that, that God has shed the blood of his son for that person. So whether they're getting something or not getting it, or they're thriving, or they're falling behind, the fact is God shed His blood for them. They're forgiven for all the things about them that make you upset. Does that make sense? So there's things that make you mad that they do, like the haircut that they wear, you know. Uh, Like, yeah, you get the point. They're justified by faith alone, just as you. Don't claim the doctrine of justified by faith alone and then deny it in your action. You know what I'm saying? So they're saved by faith alone, not by the hair that they wear. right? So don't you love them based upon the hair that they wear, instead of by the position that they hold before a holy God because of the work of Jesus on the cross. You hold them because of that. And you love them because of that. Second, uh, how. Uh, look for places of grace in their life. Look for places of grace in their life. Every believer has evidence of grace. Meaning places where God is at work. Look for the grace. Like, we don't do that enough as a church. It's just a good practical thing to, to do. It's just to see where God is at work in each other's lives. Don't dishonor, and guys, here's the deal, don't dishonor the work of God by only complaining about the works of the flesh. Right? Does that make sense? So, when we look at a fellow follower of Jesus, and all we do is complain about their sinfulness, we're totally missing out on the work of God in their life. Make sense? So, don't dishonor the work of God by only complaining about the sinfulness that still resides. Third thing, don't forget that you were once separated from God. I would say for me personally, single-handedly, this is probably one of the biggest things that radically transformed my life in dealing with people as a pastor, as a person, as a fellow brother, is when I realized just the fact that I was separated from God and needed redeemed, and what God did in my life... uh, then that just completely changed my perspective on everybody else. So if you call Jesus Lord of your life, you were once alienated from God. And He has extended great mercy and grace to us. Let's look at a couple of verses and we're almost done. Chapter 2, verse 12 of Ephesians. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a uh, bad place to be. You were undeserving, we were undeserving of all divine affection and all divine honor. We see that? You get that? So prior to God's work in our life of redeeming us through the blood of Jesus on the cross, we were undeserving of all divine affection and all divine honor. But God has given us both in Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Counting them worthy of our... Service. So let's not forget our undeserving position that we once held. Right? Perhaps the most important answer to the question of how can I become this kind of person is to wake up and realize and feel the preciousness of God's mercy to you personally. Like So it's not... It's not we just need to think happy thoughts so that we can love each other more, or we just need to focus on the good of that person, because eventually the good of that person is going to run out, right? Uh, Eventually their evil is going to supersede or outweigh that. But instead, what we should concentrate on is God and His mercy to us. And then from that, where we thrive and live relationally. let's go back to the beginning of the chapter of Romans, chapter 12. Verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So by the mercies of God, we will love each other with brotherly affection. That's what Paul's getting at here. By the mercies of God, we will outdo one another in showing honor. So our only hope is to revel in His mercy. And affection for God's people will grow and you will love to honor them. Does that make sense? So when we revel in God's mercy and understand God's mercy in our lives, then from that should come our affection and our honor. Maybe you say, I don't know this mercy. I, I, I have glimpses of it. I have Maybe some thoughts about it. Maybe you think that God has been good to you because he gave you this or gave you that. Is that mercy? Maybe you think that God has been mean to you and you say, How is that mercy? And speaking about mercy, the Bible is talking about all of us as sinful people who are not in right relationship with God. And then God breaks through that mess sends Jesus to die on the cross to pay the price for those sins in order to bring us back into relationship with him. That's the mercy of God. See, he doesn't have to do that for anybody. Like if God was to only choose to redeem one person, that would still be an act of grace. But I think God has made that available to all people. It's just through his son, Jesus Christ. That is the mercy that Paul is talking about here. If God has broken through and made us alive in Christ through the work of His Son, Jesus, then the only thing that makes sense is this kind of life, this kind of relationships. So, in all these exhortations that Paul gives us, we can't simply think hard upon them and expect life to change. The only way to change our affections, right? So our affections for God, and then from that comes our brotherly affection, and our honoring, and our hatred of evil. The only way to rid our lives of affection for these things, for evil, self-love, self-honor, is to replace it with something greater. That we can't just get rid of this stuff. Uh, let me read to you a very short section from this guy named Tom, Thomas Chalmers. He was a preacher in the late 19th century, Scottish Presbyterian minister. He says this, The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Thus, it is not enough to hold out to the world the mirror of its own imperfections. we can't just look at the imperfections of that which we're trying to base our affections on. We can't just begin to look at the flaws of that. It's not enough to come forth with a demonstration of the evanescent character or the evanescent character of your enjoyments to speak to the conscience of its follies. Rather, Try every legitimate method of finding access to your hearts for the love of Him who is greater than the world. Let me repeat that last phrase for us. So instead of just trying to find the flaws in our uh, wrongful affections for these things or our inadequate affections, is we can't just do that or just muster up more affection for it. we have to replace the affection for self-love, self-honoring, and love for evil with an affection for something greater. And he says, rather, try every legitimate method of finding access to your heart. I'm sorry, finding access to your heart's love for Him who is greater than the world. So every opportunity we can To feed our affection for God. That's what we must do. In order to replace the affections for these other things. With our affection for God. And then from that flows our hatred of evil. Our honoring, showing preference and honor to other people. And our brotherly affection for them. So. um, I want to pray for us. uh, And then we're going to sing one last song. And I want to encourage you guys. To consider these thoughts. Are you, do you have this kind of brotherly affection? Uh, or are you in pursuit of other affections? Um, just uh, ask God to, to reveal himself to you in that. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to worship you. Father, I pray that um, as, we, as we sing, as we worship you, Uh, Father, that You would reveal to our hearts the places where we are finding satisfaction and fulfillment in apart from You. Uh, Father, that You would change our our hearts to love that which You love uh, and to hate that which You hate. And Father, we um, will give You the grace or give You the glory for that in our lives. And Father... um, we love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you all stand with? Me?